With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hello, Slate Podcast listeners. Help us make a better Slate by answering our survey. It'll only take a few minutes, and you can find it at slate.com survey. Thanks. You listen to enough Silicon Valley people talk about their creativity, it's like, make your mark. Uh, put a dent in the universe. Move fast and break things. It's like all vandalism metaphors. Mm. And this is the kind of thing people are like, yeah, whatever. But I'm like, no, this stuff matters, man. How you conceive of this stuff, it impacts the way you do it. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, Ramon Alam. And the voice you heard right before we started talking belongs to Austin Cleon. Ruman, who is Austin Cleon? It's kind of a trick question, honestly, because Austin describes himself as a writer, which you'll hear in our conversation, and that's absolutely true. But Austin is also incredibly well-known as what you might call a creativity guru. He's written these three books, Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, and Keep Going, that are all about the creative process, sort of demystifying and distilling it. Got it. Well, okay, this is, I think, the point where I should admit my priors. I get reflexively, I'm going to go so far as to say inappropriately, suspicious of people who are like creativity coaches and stuff, despite the fact that I kind of think our job here at Slate means both of us are kind of creativity coaches. You know, I don't disagree with that. I'm a bit of a skeptic myself, but I read Austin's books and I listened to them on audio as well. And I have to say that I see a lot of value in them. I think that he is up to something kind of interesting. Uh, So what sets him apart from the pack? To me, the accomplishment in Austin's work is that it's not prescriptive, really. He's describing or endorsing an attitude toward art And that'll mean something different to every reader. You know, I'm connected to creativity. I'm I'm making air quotes. Creativity (laughs) by virtue of what I do, but also as a consequence of my formal education and so on. So, but formal education or profession shouldn't be a barrier to entry in the creation of or the enjoyment of art. You know, art is a fundamental human endeavor. It belongs to all of us whether or not we went to school for it, whether or not we make money practicing it. Oh, well, that's so exciting. I cannot wait to listen to your conversation with Austin Cleon. And I should say, after Ruman's conversation, we have a uh, listener voicemail asking us for some help with finding a community of like-minded artists. But before we get to any of that, let me just take a second to remind you, if you are listening to this, two things. One, if you like the show, please, please, please subscribe to it. Two, Maybe you want to subscribe to Slate Plus as well. If you enjoy this podcast and the rest of Slate's journalism, please consider supporting us by joining Slate Plus. Those of you who are already members will hear a little more from Ruman's conversation with Austin, uh, which is one of many, many benefits of membership. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. Okay, enough out of me. Let's hear Ruman's conversation with Austin Cleon.
This episode of Working is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love listening to in-depth interviews and discussions of craft and the creative process or whatever the heck it is all the other podcasts you listen to do, you call the shots with what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So, Austin, if I went to the library or to the bookstore in search of your trio of related books, which are called Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, and Keep Going, in which section would I find those books? Oh, you know, as a former library worker, I am going to be very embarrassed. I, You know, I think it probably depends. You, you probably weirdly find them in like 150, like in the self-help section. My artsy-fartsy side of me like, would say I would hope that they would be in the 700s with the other art books. <laughs> yeah, what do you think of that? Have you ever thought of this body of work or yourself as in the self-help business? I didn't at first. You know, it, it concerns me that there are people who want to be a self-help author. I'm very, like, I meet these people now, and I'm like, why? Why? Really? Because... For me, it's been accidental. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't set out, I, I just, when I was 19, I mean, I, I want to be a self-help author, you know, I want to be an artist, be a writer. Um, and I feel like me c- coming into this is really by accident. I mean, all I was doing in the beginning was, I was just sharing what I was learning while I was trying to get good. And then it just turned out that the sharing what I was learning turned into the work, the thing that people Mm -hmm. really wanted Mm -hmm. from me. Mm -hmm. And that's still a balance in my life, you know? Like, I still have to balance that, like, okay, people come to me for, like, a certain thing now, but what I really want to do is sit around and make collages. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, it's that that tension that, you know, keeps things interesting for me. But I never wanted to be a self-help writer. And I've, you know, because here's the thing about self-help. It's like, as you, like, you know, someone will be like, creativity guru, Austin Cleon, or creativity expert, and I'll always be like, no, 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 because that requires certainty. For me to be a guru or an expert, I have to have something that I'm like super certain about to tell Mm -hmm. you, to impart Mm -hmm. to you some sort of wisdom. That's not how art works. You know that. Like Mm -hmm. art requires not knowing. It requires like this uncertainty to always be questing and always be questioning. And like the minute you're an expert... You know, it's like Milton Glaser said about Picasso. It's like every time Picasso learned something, he abandoned it. Because, you know, it's like Carlin said, uh, an artist has a responsibility to be en route, to be moving, Mm. to be advancing, you know? So it's like, it's that hard thing of like being a teacher and remaining a student, you Mm. know? And so for me, it's just, it works better for me if I avoid any kind of gurudom or expertise and I just go with the I'm a fellow student like when I talk Mm -hmm. to my readers I'm like I'm a fellow student I'm trying to figure this out this is just what I'm learning Mm -hmm. because the worst because the worst thing is as someone who has artistic pretensions and wants to be an (laughs) artist like the worst thing in the world for you would be to be on stage talking about art and someone saying well what the hell does he do though like what does he make you know and yeah. that's like something I'm bad. You know, it's just a fight. It's not a fight. It's um, it's a, it's a dance. Mm-hmm. When I hear you describe yourself, I usually hear you talk about yourself as a writer who draws, right? Not someone who's engaged in the business of being a guru, as you say. 
But you are also someone who's had a lot of jobs. As you mentioned, you once worked in a library, you've worked as a web designer, you've worked as a copywriter. My sense is that from an early age, you've wanted a life as a writer, period. Yeah. And that being cast in this role as a writer who writes about writing itself is a little bit of a surprise even to you. Is that true? Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And my wife always reminds me, she's like, you know, you're, you're primarily a writer. I mean, you love art and you love to draw, but that's why you say you're a writer who draws. Your identity really comes from thinking of yourself as a writer. And that is true for me. I don't know if that's just because so much of what I love is rooting in, rooted in reading. I don't know if it's because that's the most formal education I've had is in writing. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I do consider myself a writer more than anything else. So in these three books, you're using the skill of writing to talk about the act of writing itself. But I wanted to ask you actually, in those day jobs that I mentioned as a designer, working at a library, working at an ad agency, what were the tangible lessons from that work that informed the work that you do now? When I was a librarian, the amazing thing for me is, I mean, a couple of things happened. First of all, I I just had access to I learned how to research, find stuff I was looking for. Uh, You know, I stumbled on books in the course of researching that influenced me greatly. Like I found the work of Edward Tufte and learned what a designer was and all this kind of stuff. The 700s, you know. (laughs) Um, But the other thing I learned that really blew my mind was um, I taught senior citizens how to use computers and work on the Internet. And I just thought, holy moly, these websites are terrible. Like, the web is really bad. Like, it's really inaccessible, and, like, it's not easy to learn. And so that just, like, got me really interested in web design. And then when we moved to Texas, my my wife got into the the architecture program here in Austin. And um, I just decided I had a really good creative writing professor who was like, "Don't, don't go to grad school right away. Just get a job and write for a little bit and see where it takes you. Um, and so I just got another day job. I, I, but I actually got a job as a web designer at the law school here in, here in Austin. And that job was incredible because I learned how to make websites. And that was just turned out to be, you know, I mean, this would have been like 2008, 2007, 2008, So all that went into building my own site and like learning the internet and all that. Now, my first book, Newspaper Blackout, came out while I was a web designer. No poets ever quit their day job after their book. (laughs) So, you know, it's like, so I went to the dark side after that. When Newspaper Blackout came out, I got really interested in advertising and marketing. And so I said, well, let me, you know, a lot of my friends who are really good cartoonists or you know, writers, they have like a copywriting background. So I knew a buddy that was in advertising. So he got me this job in in digital marketing as a copywriter. And that was, you know, working in advertising is eye-opening in many ways. Um, But then I just learned just to string a really, you know, just to sell stuff with words was really valuable. Yeah. In marketing, you learn like people like to be told what to do. Buy this toothpaste. Yeah, Yeah, like click here, you know, buy my book, you know, like you got to tell people. So there are all these little lessons. Um, I mean, the reason I ask actually is because I think that we have, I think there can be a way of demeaning the day job where somebody yearns to be a painter, but they're stuck working in real estate and that's just what they do because they need to have health insurance. They have a family to take care of, they have responsibilities And I am someone who has had a resume not unlike yours. I worked in publishing and then I worked in advertising. And I always like to stress how much I learned in that experience and how much that there were tangible things that informed my ability to do my work. Yes, and no experience is lost. 
everything you're into and interested in, anything you spend time on, those things will start to talk to each other, you know, Mm -hmm. and there's such, I think a day job connects you to the world and such a, for better or worse, it really, you're in the world in a particular way. And I think that is so grounding because my life now is just so like, it's just kids and writing. You know, it's not, it's not really, I have to kind of go out of my way to be connected Mm -hmm. with the actual world, you know, whether it's taking a walk or going to the bank or having to get, I don't know, like people come to work on the house and I find myself Mm -hmm. like, you know, having these, it's, it's just so hard to, it's so easy to stay in your little, especially now during quarantine, it's like, you know, it's easy to get disconnected. But I, I think that that was the thing for me is that a day job it t- it teaches you so much, but then also like connects you to this particular world, you know. So you mentioned that you have two kids, yes, two little boys. Two boys. One thing I really I love asking this question of men in particular because I think that our colleagues who are women have been asked this for a really long time, and it's less often asked of fathers. I'm curious to hear what the experience of becoming a parent how that affected your relationship to your work and to the work that you're actually producing. I don't know. My kids have just taught me. I mean, it's hard. It's funny because I'm working on a book right now that's sort of about our, I've been trying to write about what's going on, but you know, you've had this experience with your kids, like just going to a museum with a five-year-old is just the most, you know, I know you've written about this. It's like, it just blows your mind. You just learn this new way of looking. And so many of the great artists, sort of like Corita Kent, who's one of my heroes, um, that, you know, she was a nun and she did screen prints in the 60s and 70s in Los Angeles. She, in her book, Learning by Heart, she's like, borrow a kid. Like, that's part of her advice. She's like, borrow a kid, hang out with a kid for a while. That's the kind of raw seeing without knowing the words for things. Yeah. You know, her yeah. saying that versus Robert Irwin saying seeing is forgetting the name of the thing one sees. It's the same right. advice. It's that same kind of raw. And so, you know, I'm a quote collector, of course. So I've just collected, I just have this gigantic file of of artists who have said, you know, just being around kids just blew my mind. And, you know. So I guess I'm wondering how broadly you define creativity in these three books specifically like if you are someone to whom people are going for creative advice do you think that that audience is coming to you to be told here is how to make a painting or write a novel and sell it and prosper or do you think that they're coming to you for something else probably the latter i think that i have always been a synthesis so i'm trying to pull in i'm trying to be as expansive as I can when I talk about creative work, because part of my vision is that everyone should do it. Not everyone should try to do it for a living. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, that I I truly believe that we need more handiwork. We need more of what like Ursula K. Le Guin called the hand mind. I think that is missing in people's lives. The idea of making and fixing repair, you know, it's, as the books go on to my vision of what, is creative work expands too. So in the last book, I'm talking about things that might be thought of as maintenance work, like repairing or fixing or mending. I'm starting to, you know, I've gotten to this place where I'm like, I just feel like so many of the metaphors we use for creativity, you know, I realize at a certain point, it's like you listen to enough Silicon Valley people talk about their creativity. It's like, make your mark. Uh, (laughs) Put a dent in the universe. Move fast and break things. It's like all vandalism metaphors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was just like, this is just so... And this is the kind of thing people are like, yeah, whatever. But I'm like, no, this stuff matters, man. Because if you think about it this way, you're going to do this whole... How you conceive of this stuff, it impacts the way you do it. And so, you know, in the last book, I'm starting to think like, well, maybe there are just like better metaphors for doing creative work. What if we mm-hmm. think about repair and healing and you know especially in collage there's this sense that i'm taking things that aren't you know when i make a collage it's like 
you're taking two things that should be together but aren't, you know, and you're putting it. And, and I think so much of writing is that, too. It's like the writer sees something over here and he sees something over here. And it's like, what if I juxtapose those two things and all of a sudden I have an essay? Mm-hmm. We'll be back with more of Ruman's conversation with Austin Kleon after this. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Listeners, we would love to know your questions about the creative process, big or small. Whether you're trying to stick to a New Year's resolution about learning to paint or struggling to finish that novel in your drawer, we are here to help. You can drop us a line at workingatslate.com or give us an old-fashioned phone call. Remember those? Well, you can call us at 304-933-WORK. That's 304-933-9675. Five. Like your parents, we love phone calls. Okay, let's rejoin Ruman's conversation with Austin Cleon. My feeling about it, reading your books, is that creativity can simultaneously seem really like vaunted and high, but it can also seem really tied to production and capital. And it feels to me like you're talking about a practice that is almost, and this is where we get back to self-help, almost spiritual. That there can be yeah. some good in making something with your hands that you can't use, that doesn't do anything useful, that doesn't, you can't sell it for $15. It's, it's just the joy of making it. It's like Vonnegut said, you know, you do it to make your soul grow. I mean, at the end of the day, it either makes your soul grow. I I don't know a better reason, you know. To me, it feels like it just feels. I mean, so like the tire lights on in my car because it's cold here in Austin right now, and I'm gonna pump up the tires after we talk, and I'm gonna feel so satisfied <laughs> afterwards. I'm gonna be like, it's gonna feel so good to put air in the tires. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And to be topped up. And but it's weird. It's like, isn't that kind of what it's like after a good, like, sketchy journaling session? You know, you feel a little bit filled up. Mm -hmm. There was a we had an older house. We moved to we've we're never moving again. I'm saying this on air. So hopefully it doesn't happen again. But there was an older house I had where we bought my Meg bought a bunch of doorknobs. And whenever I got really stressed or upset, I would I would go I would take a doorknob and replace it. Like that's what I would do as my stress relief. And I think when I sometimes when I think about writing or art now, I'm like, well, it's a solvable problem. You're creating a problem. There was no problem. No one's asking you for a piece of work. No one's asking for another book. I mean, maybe if you're like a famous writer or something, someone's that. But no one's asking you to sit down and make something. You know, like no one's asking it. You're creating that problem for yourself. So I wonder sometimes if it's like, or it's like doing a puzzle or something, or it's like you're sitting down and, you know, you mess. You, you, this happens with drawing a lot. It's like, you make a mark on the page and then you're like, well, I don't want to waste this page. How can I fix it? You know, there's like, there's this idea that, you know, an artist creates problems to solve. I'm curious to know who your audience is, I guess, who your reader is. And who the hell knows? Do you not know? <laughs> do you not have a sense of like what it is people are coming to you for? Well, they're just, it's just such a diverse, and I mean that in many ways. I mean, like, I just, it's just so, there's just so many different kinds of people that I meet. But I think it's some, I think at the end of the day, it's someone who is, you know, you probably come to the books just because you, 
you want this thing in your life and you're just not sure how to get it in. You, you know what I mean? Or, yeah. or like there's something, you want access to this thing. The word that people use a lot for me that I bristle against, but I get it now. People used to say to me, your books give me permission. You gave me permission to do this stuff. I thought you had to like go to school for it or someone had to like knight you, you know, but like your books gave me permission. And I used to get really kind of like permission. What are you looking for permission for? This isn't school. This isn't like I don't hand out bathroom passes. Like what is this permission thing? And then I got to thinking some more about it and I was like, well, this is just Lewis Hyde and the gift. I mean, he talks mm-hmm. about this that our gifts are activated by the gifts of other people. And it's seeing other people work that says, wait a minute, I'd like to do that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I love that story about Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers would have like musicians or sculptors or whatever on the show. And they'd be like, well, I don't know how to talk to kids. And Mr. Rogers would say, well, I don't want you to talk to the kids. You know, he'd say like, I just want you to do what you do in front of them. Right. And someone will yeah. see you, you will activate something in them. And they, and, and, and so I think like when you have a certain attitude or you have a certain way of looking at this stuff, it's just, uh, it's like a little, I, I like that term permission now. I look for artists now, I'm like, who's giving permission for, you know, I like this. But I think like because we're such a schooled culture, you know, mm. we're, we're, we're like, very early on, we get that idea that, like, well, an adult has to tell us that it's okay to do this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so we're kind of trained to look for permission. But to your point, like, so we do live in a culture that is accustomed to a kind of teacher-student relationship or, like, an adult-kid relationship. Have you ever had an experience where a reader comes to you frustrated or angry and says like oh you're you're telling me you're not giving me or whatever it is you're not giving me a specific exercise you're not telling me how to make money i'm you know i don't want a nebulous creative life i want to know how to like crack this nut and become a fine artist or a sculptor you know whatever a dancer whatever it is that that they want to do has that ever happened to you yeah, I mean, sometimes people are looking for things that I can't give them, and that's when the librarian in me kicks in, you know? I mean, I'm like, well, go read so-and-so. Like, someone yeah. said to me the other day, well, what do you think about vulnerability? I'm like, well, I don't, because I'm a sociopath, so you could go read <laughs> Brene Brown. Right. Next question. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, yeah. it's like... You can't do everything for everybody. I can't do everything, yeah. you know? And it's, it is funny how... You know, I got a lot of holes. I got a lot of things I don't address. What I try to do is point to other people then and say, look Mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. Because I'm trying to do what I do well. And then, you know, there's a a feminist writer named Ursula Franklin. And she said her dream of democracy is a potluck dinner. You know, I'm Midwestern, so this appeals to me. It's like, <laughs> you know, you bring your best dish. Yeah. You know, yeah. some people are going to bring, bring in potato salad. Some people are just going to bring a bag of chips from the grocery, whatever. I'm trying to bring my best dish. There's like something that I do. And then mm-hmm. I'm like, go over there if you want more potato salad or, what, <laughs> or whatever it is that, you, you know. So I'm going to admit, I'm going to admit to you that I am a self-help skeptic. Sure, and, you know, as you should be. I mean, you have a functioning <laughs> brain, so I would hope that you were skeptical. <laughs> well, and especially when it comes to something that's really nebulous and hard to define, like creativity. You know, I know that you can learn how to bake a cake or conjugate verbs in Russian. And I don't know if you can learn how to be more creative. Over the last week, I have listened to your three books on audio, which is, there's a new audio recording. I understand that you read it in your house. Um, And so I've had your voice in my ear for the past week, you know, while I was working out or while I was cleaning the kitchen. I know, I know that nothing is more boring than a skeptic. But I also know that you've probably heard from skeptics over the course of your career saying exactly what I just said, oh, you can't learn how to be creative. What do you say to those people? 
for me, I just I just feel like creativity is dished out in different ways and in different amounts to different kinds of people. But I also think that I just think it's a tool to get you somewhere that you want to go to. So like the I like the slipperiness of creativity. It's not necessarily like being about making art. It's it can be used. I mean, it's just like you can use it to reorganize your living room. You can use it to like paint a painting, or you can use it to like make a good gun to kill people with. You know, I mean, it's just <laughs> such a. It's like a. It's almost like an amoral tool in some ways, yeah. you know. So yeah. I think what you've really hit on. See, this is this is what's so fascinating to me, and I'm trying to bring it back around to how we began the the conversation. The word creativity was not something I thought about before. Steal Like an Artist went out in the world. If you read that book, creativity only pops up like a couple of times. It's like the last chapter is creativity is subtraction. But the word creative only pops up a couple of times in the text. That book to me was like how to be an artist, you know? And so, but I think creativity is just like almost this catch word now that we use is just like, I want something else. I want mm -hmm. something else other than what this default setting is. However... However, I'm operating, and this seems I want something else other than this. Some doubt. Which is, which if you think yeah. about it, that is the root of creative work: is looking around and saying and being maladjusted, right? Being like, <laughs> this is not. I mean, everyone quotes Martin Luther King as a kind of, and you're just like, you know, especially to be a middle-aged white guy and quote Martin Luther King, it's like, ugh. But like what he said about creative maladjustment, I think about all the time. It's like that uh, maladjustment is kind of the root of the stuff. Like if you look around and everything's great, great, sign me up for this. There's yeah. no reason to be creative about anything because you're not inventing anything new. There has to be a certain kind of itch to feel like there's something here that needs to be here. And I don't know if you can teach that. That has to exist. And then the ability to make something is like a different thing, you know. But I, you know, it's funny because um, my friends think it's hilarious that I've written these books because I'm sort of known as like a curmudgeon amongst <laughs> them. I'm like kind of a, like agitation is my kind of natural state. So like I, I'm the most creative when I'm kind of like, when I see something that I hate, like disgust for me is so like a lot of these books, they come together because I see someone that I can't stand doing something. And I'm like, I take it all in. And instead of railing at that person or that thing, I just think, what's the opposite? Mm. What's the opposite of that? And then I try to make that case. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the books feel so positive. They're like me on the, my most helpful friendly day <laughs> i feel like if the books have any like real the, the deal is though is that i'm just so angry and disgusted and agitated and i'm just trying to like get this vision of how i think it should work i mean i should say i should say that the work itself these three books really kind of defeated my own skepticism the reason being that they're not prescriptive, that they're not telling you how to have a career making paintings. Right. You're not saying, get up every morning, touch your toes 10 times, and you'll be able to write a Sistina, <laughs> right. you know? Yeah. And it's exactly yeah. the same way that a good personal trainer doesn't say, okay, get up every morning and do these 10 exercises and you'll have a perfect body. A good personal trainer says to you instead, do these exercises, you'll feel better, you'll be healthier. You might look different, but that's a bonus. That's not the focus. Yeah. That's not the point of it. And your books reminded me that like, I probably can't learn to be a better writer because the answer to that is just the same it's always ever been, which is to write, but that I can prepare myself to be better. And there is tangible stuff in here about how you do that preparation that I found really interesting. That's a lovely way to put it. I can prepare myself to do the work. I just, um, I could never, ever promise anyone anything. <laughs> I, mean, I just can't. Because I'm still not convinced, you know. I mean, like, I was lucky because I had a great teacher early on, Stephen Bauer at Miami, and he just said, 
you know, the reward you get for being a writer is you get to write. Yeah. And I just took that in really early. And I was just like, oh, yeah, that's it. Like, the reward for being a writer is you get to write. The reward for being a musician is you get to play music. The reward for being a painter is you get to make paintings. And that's it. That's it. Your books, as I said, are not necessarily about, like, concrete exercises. But I'm going to ask you for one now. Okay. Because one of the pieces of advice in your book is to make sure that you have like the tools at hand that are going to be useful for you. And right now we're all kind of stuck in home. We're all stuck at home. We're all sort of like disconnected from the friction of daily life. If I gave you a hundred dollars and I said, okay, go to the office supply store and spend this hundred dollars on the things that are going to change materially change my everyday relationship to what I'm making, how would you spend that hundred dollars? Whoa, that <laughs> is a great question. It's hard. I, I want to be material agnostic because I don't know what you necessarily want to do. But like for a writer, I would buy a kitchen timer and I'm stealing this from Linda Berry. I would buy a kitchen timer. I would buy some junky composition books and then markers, pens. And then I would buy I would buy a um we have a hundred dollars, so you know. I'd buy a box with a lock, like one of those little lock boxes that you can like keep cash in and stuff that you'd see. So I'd buy you a little box with a lock, a kitchen timer, and then some composition books and like some fun pens. And maybe one of those date stampers, because I love those, those little office date stampers. Yeah. And every morning, you lock your phone in the box before you look at it. And then you set a kitchen timer for an hour. And you just, you don't have to do anything else. You just literally have to sit with an open notebook and a kitchen timer going. And I'd say, just do that for two weeks and see how your life goes. I do the Mary Carr thing where she says, why don't you try praying for 30 days and see if it makes your life better? You know, I would just, I would be like, every morning, you'd lock your phone in the box, click, set the kitchen timer for an hour, see how your life goes. That's what I would, particularly people who are having trouble writing. Because I have found for me personally, if I don't look at my phone for the first hour in the morning and I just sit with my notebook, things just come. Because there's space. And as much as I don't believe in the muse or the divine inspiration, I do believe that if you make a space, your mind hates being bored so much. It hates staring at a void that it will invent something for you. And things that you didn't even know were in your head will come forth. Austin, thank you so much for your time today. It was really such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. if you are burnt out. If email is something that gives you like a shiver in your spine. You are not alone. I'm Shirley Leung, host of Say More from the Boston Globe. Our new series is Beating Burnout. We'll hear from Cal Newport, Krista Tibbet, and more. We'll talk about breaking bad habits and forming new ones. The cure for burnout is all of us caring for each other. Say more from the Boston Globe. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Slate listeners, I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. 
We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Ruman, what a wonderful, hilarious conversation that you just had with Austin. I am so curious about what surprised you about this interview. Oh, that's a great question. I was really struck by Austin's awareness of being the creativity guru and his desire to maybe get back to the very thing he espouses, which is just the work itself. You know, whatever that means to him, whether that's playing with poems or drawing or engaging in something that's not for public consumption. Yeah, that's great. You know, he describes himself as a, quote, collector uh, in that interview. And it was really fascinating for me to just notice how many different adages, aphorisms, approaches he seemed to have on file in his brain. Like he was once a librarian, but now he's like a living card catalog or something. It was really impressive to me, his ability to sort of summon the wisdom of these really well-known creative folks. You know, just earlier this week, the novelist Karen Mahajan posted on Twitter a link to this really long document of quotes about writing and process that had been collected by the late Dennis Johnson, who was one of Karan's teachers. It was extraordinary stuff. I really love that peek into how artists get themselves motivated or get themselves moving or sort of refresh their kind of creative well. Yeah, absolutely. And and I also just felt like it was such a sign with Austin of how like the thing you wind up doing may be partially just connected to like what your personality is like. Like if you have a really good mind for quotes, right? You know, some sort of creative process that involves other people's texts might actually be like a really important thing for you. You know, you know, for example, um, I really appreciated his answer about the, you know, on some level, the fundamental, and I'm putting this in air quotes, uselessness of creative endeavors. That sometimes you do creative work for its own sake, or maybe for your sake, because it it, it helps your soul to grow. And I thought that was really beautiful. But I also sometimes feel a little suspicious of that. Like you and me and Austin, we are people who actually do make money from our creative work. Are, are we hypocrites for telling other people that making art is its own reward? I don't think so. I think that it is important to be reminded, as I was when I read these books, that some of the ways that I approach art are informed by my education or my immersion in it. And there is someone out there who may not know that they have permission to write a poem or make a collage. And I think that's fundamentally what Austin is saying, you know, One of my favorite things about his books is that he's not telling any reader how to succeed as an artist. You know, that has to do with luck and timing. Getting paid as an artist is a whole other thing. What he's telling them, I think, is that these are attitudes that can help you find your way to work that will reward you personally. That's an important distinction, and I also think that that personal reward is very real. It's really tangible. You know, it's kind of, it's something that I even forget because I'm in the business of making a living. I forget that it's possible to just have fun and do something with my hands. I I get to have that experience particularly vicariously when, you know, Iris is working on some art project of like, oh, right, there's a thing that doesn't have to do with making money off of this that's really vital. Absolutely. I mean, Isaac, you know the theater, so of course you will know in Six Degrees of Separation where the fancy art dealers are talking about the second graders are all Matisse. Like every single one of them is Matisse because they're so connected to this sort of inherent impulse toward art making that Uh, has to do with joy, you know? 
but they're also Matisse's because the teacher takes the painting away from them. Right, the they right know when to stop. Because right? they know when to stop. And actually, that sort of weirdly connects us to the voicemail we got from a listener today, which is about what to do with the thing you've created once you've created it. Hi, Slate. This is Helen. Um, I live on a very small rural farm in Virginia with a little baby girl, and I'm finishing my first novel. The challenge, other than trying to just do my work um, and write, is um, trying to find a good fit writing community. I would just love to be able to work with other writers to kind of discuss all of our work, discuss my work, rework it, and kind of share and commiserate together. So any suggestions regarding a writing community um, would be very helpful. Thank you so much. Bye. Ruman, I feel like finding a community of like-minded artists in your field is something that is as important as it can be very daunting to do. Like I've recently found a, a, a new group of writers that I've kind of attached myself to. And honestly, I can't imagine navigating the revision time with my manuscript without them. And they're not like necessarily offering feedback. A lot of it is just, um, you know, being with people who've dealt with these problems and the, it, it's like tending to my, myself psychically. Right. But it's a real challenge to find, uh, people. And it's not just a challenge. If you live on a small rural farm, it's a challenge for everyone right now due to the pandemic. Uh, I will say being on a farm is not necessarily a, a hindrance. Almost all of the writing community I have found in my life, with the exception of in graduate school, are people I have met online. But I didn't have a planned way of doing that. I just kind of put myself out there a lot. First, I had a blog, and now there aren't blogs. And then I was on Twitter, and through that, I just met people and started messaging them, and a community evolved, right? But Telling someone to get on Twitter to find a writing community is the shittiest advice I could possibly think of. So I'm going to punt this while I think of better advice and ask you for yours. Well, I want to start by saying that it's easy to think that some of Helen's circumstances, like living in a rural place or caring for a small child, might be curtailing her options. And the truth is that it's very difficult to find and connect with the right creative partner or group. It's like romance, you know? You might think, oh yeah, it'd be so much simpler if I lived in Manhattan. But, you know, if Hallmark television movies have taught me anything, it's that the right person is in your hometown. You know, Helen seems to know what she wants. She wants a reader. She wants a friend who's engaged in the same work. I think there's a lot of value in that, but I think it's hard to predict where that person is waiting for her. So yes, I think joining Twitter is not bad advice. Follow your local library, follow your local independent bookstore, follow writers you admire, figure out what literary magazines you like, you know, follow the local colleges and universities, see what visiting writers are coming in, go to those readings and lectures. They're all virtual now anyway. But in a better world where some of this stuff is happening in person, you might just happen upon a kindred spirit. That's great, Ruman, because I think one of the things that, that you're pointing out is that this is a process just like writing the book is a process and it is in itself a creative process. And once life is back to normal, going and doing all of that stuff is really, really helpful. Just to piggyback on that, there are also places where there is a kind of ready-made community that you can plug into. One of them is writing conferences and book festivals, right? Um, I happen to know of one in Richmond, Virginia, the James River Writers Conference, since you're in, in Virginia, Helen. I've been to it. I have friends who go every year. You know, there's a community there. There's, uh, you could apply to residences or colonies if you can arrange the childcare to attend. Um, I actually don't personally do that because I can't arrange the childcare to attend. Uh, but you know, like if you can, it's, it's probably worth checking out. Um, you might even, if you have the resources, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth, want to consider a low residency MFA. I know lots of people who have found community through those and, um, they tend to attract more parents because of the low residency part. So there are a bunch of different ways out there that you can meet people. It, it, I will say that it's not going to happen overnight, but it is part of just engaging in the process of being a writer and creating a community. I also think you kind of have to come out as a writer. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be embarrassing to tell a stranger at a party that you're writing a book, but 
that stranger could well turn out to be a writer or a literary agent or who knows what, you know? I have one very dear friend who is my reader and I'm hers. And we met at a party making awkward small talk about our children. It happens and you can never quite predict when or where it will happen. So I'd say if putting out feelers doesn't feel as active and specific as Helen wants to be, she should just go big. You know, if she's read a story that she liked in a literary magazine, she should email the writer and forge an acquaintanceship. You know, it's not going to work if she's emailing, you know, Lauren Groff and Louise Erdrich necessarily, but it might work better than she thinks. Helen, thank you so much for calling in. We hope this has been helpful. Write us, let us know how it's going. And as for the rest of you out there listening, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And yes, it is time once again for the Slate Plus Pitch. Drum roll, please. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence. But more importantly, you'll be supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Austin Cleon, and as always to our producer, Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for Isaac's conversation with cartoonist Noel Stevenson. Until then, get back to work. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did to create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.